the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today let's have a chat all about and a talk to Al Taylor. Now, Al was born in 1937 in Lithgow. He grew up during World War II, blackout curtains, gas bags on buses, coupons. Then in 1942, he saw four P-39 air Cobras carrying out mock attacks against the Lithgow small arms factory. He was five and very impressed. Growing up, he built and flew control line model aircraft and studied model radio controlled aircraft. Then in 1952, he had a, a joyride in a tiger moth. Well, he joined the RAAF in 1954 via the RAF College. By 1958, he joined number 22 City of Sydney Squadron, operating Wirraway, Vampire and Meteor, followed by a Sabre conversion. And then he was posted to Malaya. In 1965, he continued his fighter flying on Mirages. Then come 1974, he progressed to 77 Squadron as Operations Officer and then 77 Squadron Commanding Officer. This culminated in him leading the Mirage display team. In 1981, he retired and joined civilian aerospace contractors. Al then bought a powered hang glider and attempted to fly around Australia for the Fred Hollows Foundation. He followed this with more fun and games on model radio-controlled aircraft, together with flight simulation on computers linked with pilots around the world. Spitfires in a Battle of Britain scenario, FA-18 from Carriers and UH-1H in the Middle East scenario. It's all good stuff, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Al. Well, Wing Commander Al Taylor retired. It's nice to have your company, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Silly question I want to start with. You, you were born before World War II. Yep. I wonder what was it like as a young boy, primary school age, growing up in World War Two in Australia? Well, to us it was pretty normal. We didn't know any difference, of course, and everybody was in the same boat, and uh, we were quite happy. There were a few things that were odd. Uh, I remember getting into trouble once for pulling the uh, the black cover off a window, the blackout curtains, yes. which had to be up for on all houses uh, every night. So it's pretty dark at night. The cars. There weren't very many cars those days, of course, but the cars had, mainly trucks did, I suppose, had gas producers on them. I think they they uh, they cooked coke uh, inside the uh, gas producers and then fed water into it to make water gas. That just broke up the, the uh, gases into hydrogen and oxygen. Somehow that went to the carburetor and it all uh, burnt again and uh, made the cars run. The buses were uh, uh, amazing because uh, they were single-decker buses, but they had another deck on top, which was a big gas bag, the same size virtually as the bus. And on every trip uh, around uh, Lithgow, they would do a, a, a circuit and then come back down to the gas works, which was right next to the main street uh, and the bus terminus, 
and um, fill up with gas and this big gas bag would blow right up again and by the time they came back again after their run it would be right down. The cars and the trucks had headlight filters I suppose they were just only allowing the the light from the headlight to show just in front of the car. Very small amount of light. Well what about the I don't know how old you would have been, but you had a, an air cobra doing a mock attack on the Lithgow Small Arms Factory? Yeah, that's the first thing I remember in life, actually. I was five, I was five, and five years, three months when this happened, and uh, it's the first thing that, that I have a, a vivid memory of, uh, which stayed with me all my life. There were four, four air cobras did mock attacks on the Lithgow Small Arms Factory, my father was a worker at the factory, and because of the shape and size of Lithgow, they had to uh, run along the ridge line where our house was. And as far as I was concerned, then I had to duck. Now, obviously, they were higher than that, but as a young fellow watching these things I'd never seen before, I ducked each time they came past. But they kept coming past over our uh, over our backyard. Was that an initial motivation for eventually becoming a Ab- member of the AAF? Absolutely. The sole thing, because that's left a, an indelible impression on my mind uh, about flying, and uh, and that's all I ever wanted to do since since I was five years old. What about the Bathurst Air Show? You got the opportunity of flying, what, in a, in a Tiger Moth? Yeah, in a Tiger Moth. I went up two years in a row, hitchhiked up to Bathurst. That's how we got around those days. And uh, for 10 shillings... That's, what's that, $1 these days? Ten, 10 shillings. We could get, I think, 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes in a tiger moth. They wouldn't do any aerobatics. They weren't allowed to do any aerobatics with passengers on board, of course. But they would push the stick forward and back and forward and back and forward. just like a roller coaster, which I thoroughly enjoyed. 10 shillings. That, that, that would have been a lot of money then. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you earn the money what did you do <laughs> i used to work in the uh, picture th- local picture theater the closest one to our house uh, selling ice creams and chocolates uh, during interval on a saturday night uh, that brought in a little bit uh, do some strawberry uh, strawberry blackberry picking uh, we had um, some areas where we could go to and fill up uh, a kerosene tin i think that was about Five, five litres gallon? No, it'd be more than that. But anyway, quite a bit. And you get 10 shillings for a, tin, a big tin of straw, uh, blackberries. Well, 10 shillings well spent. Because we come to 1954, and you... Is it 54 that you joined the, uh, joined yes. the RAA College yeah. or joined up? Yep. On the yeah, 18th of January, 1954, was our first day down to uh, Point Cook. Travelled down by train. Bought my first packet of cigarettes before I boarded the train. <laughs> and, uh, I was six, still 16 then, yeah. And you were allowed to buy the cigarettes then too, by the way. I don't know, we always put our ages up. <laughs> I wonder why, I wonder why. Uh, you get back into it, you're in the college, the RAA of college. Tiger moths rear their head again. They do, absolutely. We did a flight grading. Uh, very soon after entering the college, probably within uh, a, a month or two. And uh, we had 36 people on the college course. There were 37 on day one, but we, our first task was to run around a lake being being flicked with wet towels by the senior courses. 
and uh, one person didn't even bother to unpack. He just walked straight back out the gate again, got his bag and left. Oh, that okay. left 36. And um, so flight grading was to was to uh, sort out if you could fly or whether you couldn't fly. And what happened as a result of that, I think, four, four of our uh, course members uh, were not coordinated enough and they became navigators. So did all 36 get through? No, only... Um, 12 total, so we only got seven pilots through and uh, four navigators and one engineering officer. Okay, so how long was it before you moved from the Tiger Moth to the Wirraway? Uh, well, there's a lot of academic work to be done before that, so uh, that was one of the first, the flight grading was the first touch of the aeroplanes, but it wasn't until another three years, uh, two, two and a half years or more, before we uh, started the full flying, 18 months of flying um, uh, in earnest and again mm. back to the tiger moths we were the last course that flew tiger moths I can't <clears throat> 20 hours I think it was on tiger moths and then on to the Wirraways and you we were the last course to fly the Wirraways you have written that um, there are a lot of untold college stories can you share one of those untold college stories with us? Yeah, the only told college stories I've heard about is the history of it and uh, the numbers of people going in and out and, and the lecturers and so on. But uh, first of all, there were some restrictions that were unusual, but probably not so unusual those days. But the first, um, up until Easter, from the time we joined up until Easter, there was no leave. You couldn't go to town, you couldn't leave the base. Um, except if you joined the surf club. So everybody joined the surf club, of course. <laughs> we all became surfies <laughs> on the weekend. The other thing was that I did have a car. My, my father um, lent some money to a, a friend of mine who was older and uh, we bought a 1928 Chev for £90. Oh, and... And I got sort of used to that in the last year of school that I had. And uh, so when I got down to the college, there was no cars. The problem was, again, one of the other restrictions, no cars in the college or for college uh, for, the, uh, for the guys until they were there for three years, only in the final year. So I, I couldn't see myself waiting that long for a car. So at Easter, when we were allowed out, finally... Uh, I looked up the uh, papers and found a car and went and bought it, also for £90, a Chrysler 66. Now, we weren't allowed to keep that on the base because we weren't allowed to have cars, so I kept it at the uh, garage that was on the west gate of Point Cook. There was a small garage there and the owner there kindly let me keep it there. So on a Saturday morning after parade, we'd wander across to the garage, hop in the car and go to town. What, to go surfing? Is that... Ah, that's, no, no, that's when... The, the surfing was only in summer. <laughs> that was the first... <laughs> and that was the first few months. Any opportunity to go in town. What about... You You also expressed some concerns over missing vampires and meteors over Lithgow. Um, now, that was... Yeah, that was later on. Um, when I first... When I graduated, I went to 22 Squadron. The commanding officer of 22 Squadron was Bay Adams, uh, a World War II pilot, a well-known World War II pilot. And, um, and of course, World War II pilots were different from the pilots you'll find in the Air Force today. 
they took risks and they uh, explored the the edges of the envelope. You'd go the fastest, the slowest, the highest, and the lowest, yep. Yep. and ran right around that. And of course, a few people did die because of it. But that was the attitude of, of those days, and that's the attitude we were, I guess, taught with, advised not to do. But uh, we knew that uh, that's what you do. One day, uh, I, I checked out in Vampires and Meteors in Twenty Two Squadron. And uh, one day a P2V7 maritime aircraft visited Richmond. Um, Bay Adams asked me then to, would I fly one of the pilots around Sydney Harbour Bridge and up to Broken Bay and um, show him the the sights of Sydney. Now those days it was no problem because uh, we sort of we're on good terms with air traffic controllers. They allowed us, all you had to do was say, ring them up and say, can we fly over the Harbour Bridge round and around and have a look? There's no opera house those days. Yep. And um, yes, that was all okay. So we did that and then we went up to Broken Bay and lots of expanse of water and great. So we just put the aeroplane down close to the water and a big spit of land came up and it was a narrow spit, so I figured I'd be able to do a barrel roll from one side of the water over the land and back to the other side of the water. Um, that worked perfectly. Uh, unfortunately, there was a national fitness camp uh, on that spit that, um, that looked up and through the trees saw a vampire upside down very close to the treetops. And two witnesses, it was written up in the paper that night, Uh, A vampire crashes in Broken Bay, fears held for pilot, and two witnesses, one from the the National Fitness Camp and a lawyer, uh, saw the aeroplane crash. Uh. Um, (coughs) (laughs) So we get back back to Richmond, and I get calls from Home Command, and, you know, was everything okay? And I said, yeah, I did a bit of low flying up there, that was okay. Those days it was okay. And, uh, and uh, yes, so the, the story in the paper was that uh, these people had seen the aeroplane so close to the trees and upside down and uh, they saw it crash and then they sent out search parties by the police, the army, the air force and all sorts of people while I was up in the bar having a beer. Oh, the pilot who was with me, who was a straight and level man being... being um, Maritime, they don't put too much bank on. Yeah, uh, he, I think he asked me where the nearest dry cleaners were when we got back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't explore that. No. We won't explore that. Let's 1959. Uh, you're with 77 Squadron. You go to Malaya um, in Sabres. What was that like? Oh, that was magic. Um, uh, I didn't, yes, so after 22 Squadron did the uh, six-month conversion to Sabres at Williamtown and then posted straight to uh, 77 Squadron as virtually the first replacements. Um, now, Sabres were, were fine aircraft. They were, they were, they were a gentleman's aeroplane and lots of room to move around in, not that you wanted to move very far, but um, it, they, were, they were excellent. And um, and uh, the posting to Malaysia was also good because it was uh, 
it was, uh, well, free and easy. All the married people had, um, I was still single then, all the married people had servants and car drivers or gardeners. Uh, a kind of different system completely to uh, Australia. This was, was the first time that... Yeah, this, we'll, come this, we'll come to the second time eventually, but with what was the purpose of your placement there in 1959? What, why were you there? Oh, well, we started, I think, in 1952 or three with um, a, a rebel, a rebel uh, guy called Chin Peng. That's their country. Chin Peng, OBE, because he used to be a... Um, a guerrilla fighter against the Japanese, and the British honoured him and gave him an OBE. Yep. And then he turned uh, communist and decided that uh, he'd uh, create problems in the uh, villages and so on. So we had the army down on the ground tracking these people, and we were there to uh, to uh, drop bombs or whatever we could do through the canopy of the jungle, guided by uh, an army uh, forward air controller, I suppose, who used to drop um, flares on top of the canopy jungle and then tell you to drop your bombs to the north of it, to the east of it or on it, that type of thing. So it, it, it's really where we're heading towards what eventually becomes the Indonesian confrontation. confrontation yeah. Um, so this is really the, the very early parts of that development. You're, 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 you're not fighting. No. The communist role in Malaya. You, you were. There was a theory that I think it was called the Domino theory, where, where, um, and of course this was, this started in Korea, yep. where the communists were going to take, come down the um, down the islands and uh, uh, through Singapore, uh, through Malaysia, Singapore, and down to our way, to um, advance communism. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. And, and so now, now before the Indonesian confrontation, it was just purely the Malaysian terrorists. Okay, okay. So how long did you spend in Malaya from 1959? Was it a, a month, six-month no, 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 it was two years, a full two-year two year year. posting, yeah. And in that two years, was there any hot activity involving you and the Sabres? Yeah, there was one... Uh, there was, there was a uh, some communist terrorists um, reported in in a in an area that the army, uh, the Australian army, the British army, and the Malaysian army had sort of surrounded this this ginormous hill. And to save, I don't know why we did it this way, but somebody in, uh, decided that instead of dropping bombs on people we couldn't see or know where they were. We'd have one squadron up at height, going up to 36,000 feet and then pointing down at the ground and dropping sonic booms so that there'd be boom, boom, boom going in the, uh, under the under the treetops. And the uh, second squadron was just flying around the uh, treetops making a lot of noise. And as, as a result, we caught three, three um, communist Chinese walked out of the jungle terrified, wondering what was going on. And then, sure. the, then the Malaysian army, they walked into a Malaysian army um, camp uh, or patrol and um, 
Then the Malaysians told them exactly what was happening. Then there was another almighty bunch of booms and some aeroplanes flew across the top. And while the Malaysians were looking at that, the terrorists just walked back into the jungle. <laughs> By the time we got home, we got congratulations. We've caught three, but then we found out later they'd walked back again. Walked back in again. Mm. So you're there for two years, and at the end of what that makes it 1961, what happens between 1961 and the next time you're in Malaysia in 67? So what? what fill okay. in those six years yeah. for me. All right. First one, those days you did uh, two years flying and then two years administration. That only happened when I did it, then it all went back to flying again. I was made uh, uh, adjutant, I was posted as adjutant of 23 Squadron, a Citizen Air Force Squadron up in Brisbane at Amberley. Um, and I found they didn't have any aeroplanes at that stage. All the Citizen Air Force Squadron stopped training pilots while we were away. Uh, but we found that a test, a test and ferry uh, uh, operation, uh, organisation, on the base had a sabre and a vampire. So I thought I'd try and uh, get my boss to organise uh, through command to uh, let me fly the sabre, but they wouldn't let me do that. They said, your operational command and the sabre is uh, support command. But they said, but you can fly the vampire. And uh, the vampire it was also support command, but it didn't matter. So the support command, I was uh, the vampire... I was briefed, had a new system since we flew them up in, we had a couple up in Malaya as well, a new system called Maxaret brakes. Maxaret brakes are just simply anti-skid brakes. And so you, you, the aircraft would judder a little bit when you put your brakes full on and stop in a short distance. Yep. So I had great delight in taking people for rides because it wasn't, too much work to be done in a Citizen Air Force Squadron, unfortunately, and you had to make it yourself. So I took lots of people for rides and showed them how magnificent these Maxaret brakes were because every time I landed, I jammed on the brakes and the thing would judder along and stop in a short distance. And one day I took the vampire down to Williamtown and uh, a, a flight sergeant on the line came out and said, wow, he said, this is the first vampire I've... I've seen without Maxaret units for uh, you know for a year, and I said, oh, "No, I said it's got Maxaret units. Stops on sixpence, no problem." He said, "Come with me, sir," <laughs> and he showed me his vampires that had little black wheels that touched the big wheel, and and when that stops, it releases the hydraulic pressure and right. makes it judders. Uh, it's then said, "Now let's have a look at your vampire, sir." And, my vampire didn't have any of those sort of things, but it had lots and lots of flat spots on the tyres where I'd <laughs> rubbed the tyres off. Yes. Oh, I, I, okay. After that, <laughs> I, I went to advanced. I went to Williamtown Advanced Navigation course. I think was there, so I became an advanced navigator to teach uh, pilots the system, the Mirage system, because we'd uh, been getting we we're getting the Mirage into the into the outfit and um, how do we sail for I think it was six months course advanced navigation course uh, turned me into a navigator and um, for, for Mirage purposes and, uh, and then back to Williamtown as wing navigation officer where I helped uh, well I were taught the uh, Mirage students about uh, uh, the, the uh, navigation system in the Mirage which was really a waste of time. 
especially to just look over the side. So the, the, the navigation system in the Mirage, that's what you're saying was a waste of time? Absolutely. It, Why? What What did it not do or what did it, was it supposed it, to do? It was supposed to tell you where you were and where the destination was, but it never showed you there because it couldn't work out where the... You'd have to put in the wind manually and the wind is just never what the um, uh, meteorology department tells you that, it's, uh, that it is. And so you look... That's it. You take a map, yes, and look over the side. To hit Alice Springs, once we flew to Perth to hit Alice Springs, uh, we flew 10 degrees or 5 to 10 degrees to the left of the track to Alice Springs to make sure that we we hit the road, the north-south road, and the railway line. The railway line only went to Alice Springs then. So if you... Well, I suppose we might have aimed at Alice Springs, but we were going to end up one side or the other. If we hit the road and there was no railway line, we were north of Alice Springs, and if we were hit the road and there was a railway line there as well, then we're south. So we just turned one way or the other to find Alice Springs. That was the Mirage navigation. So does that mean that you would prefer to be in the Sabre than the Mirage? It was a, yes, absolutely. The Sabre had a radio compass. The radio compass would uh, tune into radio beacons that were placed on airfields and so on, but it also tuned into uh, radio stations. So whatever the radio frequency of the radio station at uh, Alice Springs is, you would tune into that one and listen to the radio and point the needle straight at the station. No, the Mirage didn't have that. Oh, gee, thank God for the Sabre. <laughs> the, Mirage, the Mirage did have, have a TACAN, which gave you bearing and distance from a TACAN uh, system, but they're only at, uh, major air, at major RAF airports, like um, wherever the Mirage was going to go, Ambly and uh, Williamtown and Darwin. As a fighter pilot then, comparing the two aircraft as, uh, as attack machines, surely the Mirage... Forget that it was faster and all that sort of stuff, but surely the Mirage was a better fighter than the Sabre, or is that not the case? No, that was the case, absolutely, because it had a radar, it became an all-weather fighter, and it was the last of the fighter pilot's aircraft. Uh, The pilot had to do absolutely everything in a Mirage, Uh, not only fly it, but use the uh, radar systems, the weapons system, in conjunction with what you could find on the radar. But one of the best features was its engine, a real fighter pilot's engine. You didn't have to tickle it up, up to full bore. You could just sit on the end of the runway and push it straight through to full afterburner and, and it would work. It would go through to afterburner and you could leave it in full afterburner, full bore, until it's time to back off and land. And there'd be no damage to the engine. Um, the French were magnificent in making engines. Yeah. Well, there you go. All right, I do want to come to 1967, and uh, I, there's a, I thought I knew a lot of the operations and what was involved, but there's one I'd never heard of, and that was Operation Fast Caravan. Uh, yeah. It was a barrage deployment to Malaysia, and you're under the command of uh, Wing Commander Jim Fleming. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. Firstly, Jim Fleming. Tell us about Jim Fleming. <laughs> Jim Fleming was my first flying instructor at Point Cook. So in that March, whenever we did our flight grading, I was allocated to Jim Fleming along with probably another four or five uh, cadets. And he took us behind the hangar and handed out the cigarettes and said, right, we're going to be fighter pilots. All the rest of them 
are going to be taught how to do circuits and things like that but and mundane things, but we're going to get up and we're going to really ring this aircraft out and fly it to its limits and we're going to do this and that. And we all said, yeah, beauty, that's us. <laughs> what we did in actual fact was exactly the same as everybody else, but we, th- <laughs> but we thought we were different. So that's the, what the things that uh, Jim Fleming used to instil in people, the, the, the confidence and... and uh, uh, looking ahead, looking at uh, what you can do and, and what you should be doing instead of the normal old stuff. Um, so, now, he t- sorry, oh, well, here's here's one of them that you would uh, you would follow in into a hostile uh, environment without any question. Um, the next time, of course, was uh, t- let me see. Yes, that is Bay Adams. The next time was when he uh, commanded 75 Squadron and, and uh, brought me across as, um, as the sea flight commander. Uh, and, and we used to call, call the, uh, this Operation Fast Caravan Big Jim's Asiatic Airlines. And it was written up on the side of his aeroplane uh, one night. Um, so he organised this whole system using, I can't remember how many um, Hercules, but minimum, because we said we wanted, uh, he said, with his uh, uh, equipment officer, we need 20 uh, sorties of Hercules aircraft to get our stuff up, and as well as that, this, the uh, equipment that was going on the boat. But I think they only gave us three. Uh, <laughs> That's certainly not 20. <laughs> That's the, there's always money problems when we were in the Air Force. It doesn't seem to be now, but it was then. Uh, anyway, they worked it out, and he was instrumental in getting this thing and, and getting the show, getting all the mirages up there without any problems, well, overcoming any problems that turned up. Yep. So, yep. yeah, a great commander. I served again uh, as CO of 77 Squadron under him when he was officer commanding of Williamtown. Okay. And, and we were great friends. And what then was the role this second time in Malaya, Malaysia, for the RAAF in 1967? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. <laughs> uh, now, there were no communist terrorists. I think it was Malaysia then, and it formed into... Uh, I guess it was just uh, a cooperation between air forces and uh, and so on, and we also, I imagine, helped the uh, Malaysian air force get themselves established and, and form form their or help the, help them form their own uh, sure. uh, air force. I wasn't part of that, and when we were up there in '67, that certainly wasn't the part of it. No, okay, but we didn't well. go and attack anybody at that uh, in '67. Uh, that era. No. No, but again, good memories from from which was the the time you had the most fun in the two times you're in Malaya, Malaya, fifty nine oh, no. or sixty seven. Every time I hopped into an aeroplane, I had fun. Every squadron I was in had fun, was fun um, because of the uh, uh, the uniqueness of going to Malaya in the first instance. That was clearly great fun. Sure. sure. Uh, the second time was a different responsibility as, uh, as one of the flight commanders, uh, and that was also great fun. But uh, uh, no, I, f- f- flying fighters is you know a little bit like sex. 
It's, it's the best fun you can have without laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's an interesting analogy, Al. Thank you very much for that. Leading the <laughs> Mirage display team, when did that happen and what did it involve? Uh, in, it must have been 1976 when I was commanding officer of 77. We were given the task of having a display team but not given any uh, extra hours to to uh, to rehearse. Therefore, because you're not always now point, uh, doing aerobatics near the ground for a display yep. team, you've got to. So we had to restrict the uh, aerobatic side of it so that we didn't point at the ground like at a couple of thousand feet and have a chance of not pulling out. You need a lot of practice and you, you start up a high and you just bring it back down. So we formed a, uh, a team that did a lot of horizontal stuff, but uh, the unique one about it, the unique part about it, was that on the takeoff we'd have four, the four formation aircraft, and they just flew around in front of the crowd making a noise and changing formation, very low level. Um, that in itself, you know, pleases a lot of crowds. But we had two opposing aerobatic um, display that when the four were on the other side of the circle, uh, an American, Jim Fowski and myself, would come up, uh, opposite each other and uh, perform some aerobatics and uh, right in front of the crowd. And being very close to each other, it looked a bit dangerous. It wasn't, but it looked at from the crowd's point of view. It started off with probably the only time it's ever happened in the Air Force and probably will never happen again, where we would take off from the different ends of the runway. So the four got airborne, the aerobatic team, and then the two of us took off and um, uh, passed in the middle of the, air, uh, middle of the runway and uh, got on with the display. What, as in yes. heading towards yes. each other? Yes, yeah. It was pretty simple. You'd just say, oh, I'm going to keep to the left, make sure you keep to the right. Oh, work, work that out. <laughs> yeah, both keep to the left. <laughs> Except if you're left-handed, then. Which, yeah. no. um, I um, spent a little bit of time with Ruth talking about how she met you. Um, can you share that with me and the person listening to you right now? You meet this lady in the Air Force who was a trailblazer for, for women in the RAAF. How did you meet? What do you remember? Well, I first met her when I was in Operational Command. Um, I was 1970 as fighter ops. Um, and then we then we just got posted away and, and so on. That was okay. Uh, and then I went to Darwin, Staff College, Darwin. And whilst I was in Darwin... Um, I, I separated from my wife for various reasons and uh, and advice and um, became single again, I suppose. Uh, and then I was posted back to Williamtown, the 77 Squadron, and Ruthie was OIC WAF, Madam WAF uh, at Williamtown. And, and that's where we got together. Okay. And, of course, two beautiful daughters as a result of that, that marriage? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, doing well. One of no. them is doing well. <laughs> How difficult was it being married to a person 
within the RAF and having children um, and the risk, not the risk, but the challenges of being posted in different parts of the world. How, how did you handle all that? Well, again, um, we were, it was a pretty small Air Force and all the people that we knew around Ringo's age and everybody else's were, were getting the jobs like in DPO, the um, postings office. Sure. And and because we were a bit lucky in that I think that uh, they were looking after us and they, they wouldn't post us to different places. We got posted to Canberra together. And then um, I got out after I retired after uh, two or three years in Canberra and Ruthie stayed on. Now, all the people in the department, uh, postings department, we knew and they just kept posting Ruthie into Canberra jobs, different jobs, but all in Canberra. In fact, yep. for 22 years. Then one day, somebody got posted in the job that we didn't know. And he said, this, this woman's been there too long. It's time she yeah. went out onto the bases again. And that's when she had to retire. Yeah, okay. So the, we, we won't dwell on, on that, but you do retire in 1981. What, to be a gun runner? Yes, yeah, a gun runner. <laughs> what is a gun runner? Like, is it what I think it is? No, not in the real sense, but uh, I joined a company, or a company poached me. Uh, it was a French company called OFEMA, O-F-E-M-A, Office Francais d'Exportation Material Aeronautique. And um, from there, I was selling uh, weapons and aeroplanes back to the uh, Defence Force. In fact, oh, I, I sold the, uh, the squirrel helicopters and some mag mag Matra magic missiles for the Mirages, uh, were my two claims to fame. I, and I then I was by a gun runner. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, now, now I must admit that was pretty good because the French treat you real well. Uh, yeah, everything was first class: travel, food, restaurants, accommodation, were really good. But they wouldn't let me stay in France after I'd go there twice a year for the air shows and any time other Australians visited because they might have been looking at helicopters or weapon systems or radars or whatever, I'd have sure. to go. And then when they went back home, I would say to the chiefs over there, can I stay and look at your beautiful country for two weeks? I want to drive around and have a look at it. And they say, no, you will get back. <laughs> You'll get back and see if they buy and make them buy our, <laughs> our radar. It's okay. <laughs> well, we, we certainly have got some great planes from them in the past. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm fascinated how you got involved with the Fred Hollows Foundation and your, uh, your attempt uh, to fly a powered hang glider around Australia. What happened was uh, I decided that I still love flying and seats of the seat of the pants flying is really hang gliders and, oh, not hang gliders, ultralights. Hang gliders are a little bit different. But um, but I saw a hang glider, I'd never seen one before at a show down at Avalon, I think, and uh, there was a brochure on the seat. I didn't see it fly. I just looked at it and said, oh, God, what's this? And, um, and then decided I'd buy one. Once I bought it, I thought, well, okay, we've got to do something. So I have a friend who was on my course as a navigator in um, 1954, graduated in 57 as a navigator, Chris Roth. He was working for the uh, Royal Doctor Flying Service. And uh, so I rang him up 
and and said, "I'm going to fly around Australia. Do you want me? Uh, to get, do you want me to raise money for you?" And he said, "This is embarrassing, but we've also got another lady in a, another aeroplane doing the same thing at the same time as you, so we can't sponsor you." Yeah. And yeah. Um, now the Rotary have all, always been uh, good for uh, the Fred Hollows Foundation, mm. and um, so I, let, I wrote to them, and uh, they came back and said, "Yeah, sure enough, we'll we'll uh, we'll sponsor you." Well, they didn't sponsor me, but they'd happily accept our dona- Rotary's donation sure. as we drove around. And what was that a a wonderful experience? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, up until I get into, the, let's put it this way: every day was clear, calm, no turbulence, very little wind, and I had a GPS which told told me what my ground speed was, and so I'd fly up to ten thousand feet uh, and find the best tailwind. Because I was only flying for three hours each each morning before it got uh, turbulent, and uh, it was beautiful until we got up to North Queensland, and then the turbulence started. Uh, it was still okay, but it was a bit uh, a bit daunting. And t- then I went into get into um, past Mount Isa, and uh, the wind started up there. Were, I found out later there were three low pressures along the route, and uh, the wind was savage. It was. Um, uh, it was 40, 35 knots at um, fifteen hundred feet, and taking off once into the wind, there was a hell of a lot of turbulence, and it nearly tipped me over on the back. And so, you've got to straighten the, keep the wings level if you can. Yep. And in doing that, I uh, damaged some tendons in my wrist and in two of my fingers, and 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 uh, and an elbow. So I've lost all my power in one one arm. I'm now airborne in this um, in this ginormous windstorm, and uh, and I've only got one hand to fly, and you need two to fly the the aeroplane. But the aeroplane flies at 43 knots, and uh, I, I got up to I got up to 90 knots tailwind, uh, not tailwind, 90 knots ground speed with a yeah. ginormous tailwind that took me to. Um, Tennant Creek and uh, for Tennant Creek on the highway I had to turn left <laughs> and, and and then it took me another half hour to go about eight miles going into the wind. If I didn't have a GPS, I'd, I don't know where I'd be now, way out in Western Australia somewhere. Just tracking along at a couple of miles an hour, it was uh, terrible. Oh, anyway, uh, managed to land but then I couldn't get out because if, if, if I took my foot off the brake the aeroplane would blow backwards uh, and I had to take my foot off the brake to get out of the thing so I just pointed it into wind and hoped somebody would see me, which they did, from the terminal and uh, they came out and held the wings so I could get out and we could uh, wheel the wheel the aeroplane in. I've got a whole bunch of uh, video that I took on that one which, uh, which is very interesting. So was that the last real long-term experience in a plane or did after that uh, whole of... No, no, it started then with with ultralights. I I had a thing called a sapphire which is like a glider with a little two-stroke engine on the back and it used to glide like a glider, it was lovely. Then I bought a Jabiru uh, from uh, Bundaberg in Queensland and uh, 
Then I built an aeroplane, from a kit aeroplane from uh, America. Gosh. Uh, recording everything there. It took me a thousand hours to build and then I gave it to a professional to cover with fabric, iron it out. <laughs> you iron it these days, not put dope on it. Iron it straight and, and, uh, and paint it. And uh, Ruthie and I used to do quite a bit of flying in that one. So a two-seater? Yeah. Oh, yeah it was, it's quite big. It was as... Uh, had a cockpit a little bit wider than a Cessna, a Cessna 150 so and, a, and a four-stroke engine. Yeah, it was good. Flying Owl, that's, that's you. That's me. Yeah, Love sitting it. in the cockpit and looking at the horizon ahead. And I still do it. You still do it? On the internet, uh, where, where it's safe. Yeah. And where if you crash, you can just pick up another aeroplane and carry on yeah. where you used to be. <laughs> Look, you, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you, Al. You've got a remarkable career. Um, born in Lithgow back in 1937 uh, and still flying uh, on the internet, but still flying. Mm. So thank you for your contribution to this particular interview and your contribution to the Royal Australian Air Force uh, because well, both you and your wife, you really have done some remarkable things and you've contributed to the rich tapestry of its history. So thank you for your time, sir. Thank you very much, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.